Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Miss Chudley Soon we'll be making a secret match Miss Chudley Trade it on up to a better catch The world said, hey, that's not cool But Miss Chudley won Cause she's not a fool Miss Chudley The end. Let's talk about Elizabeth Chudley. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1776, which is pretty famous on this side of the Atlantic for a reason, <laughs> everyone can be reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine as it's published this year. George Washington was awarded an honorary law degree from Harvard College. Austria became the second country following Prussia to abolish torture and interrogations. The first of an eventual six volumes of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon was published. Adam Weishaupt founded the Order of the Illuminati in Bavaria to debate and oppose religious influence on society. Captain James Cook began his third and last voyage to the Pacific from England, which ended in his death. And in 1776, former courtier Elizabeth Chudley was brought up on scandalous charges that captivated a country. Elizabeth Chudley was born on March 8, 1721, the fifth child, but only the second living child, of Thomas Chudley and his first cousin, Henrietta Chudley. That's nice. You don't have to change your name. Last time at the DMV. <laughs> That's right. The monograms on the towels don't have to change. So let's just put it this way. Mama's family is Papa's family, functionally. I would like to show you in the show notes a page from a book called The English Baronetage by Arthur Collings from 1741. They're all Hughes, Georges, Thomases, and Jameses, honestly. <laughs> and they're all Elizabeth, Mary's, and Frances, or just, and I quote, a daughter of. Our Elizabeth's mama is listed in this book as, and I quote part of, he only had three daughters. <laughs> so that's as far as she goes in this entire book. And so it goes for most women, except for one lady, and I quote, Mary, daughter of Richard Lee. She was a lady of great virtue and natural parts, as appeared by what she published in verse and in prose. And there are a couple of male ancestors, true, that merit a paragraph or two. This family's deeply intertwined with royalty and nobility in the Wayback Machine. So... Lady Mary Chudley is the only female Chudley that the author deems worthy of the extra printing costs. But if only he'd waited to write this book, <laughs> the story that we're about to tell you, he could have had the C's a great story for page 531. That's how detailed this book is. The C's, and this is alphabetical order, are on page 531. <laughs> it is a slog. You might want to go exactly where you need to be and get out. But going back to Papa Thomas, 
He was the second son, so he was raised for a destiny of a noble life in the military. He was bought a military commission at an age when most of us would have preferred a pony. And by the time he was 15, he stepped into that commission as a second lieutenant. His father was your basic run-of-the-mill baronet, but his mother, who you just mentioned, Beckett, in that book, was spectacular. Lady Mary Chudley. She was a published poet in the early 1700s, only one of two, the other being Elizabeth Thomas. She was a writer and a lyric composer. She's now considered a proto-feminist. She was very much a free thinker. She wasn't shy about sharing her opinions. So Papa Thomas was raised by a very unconventional woman and a man who allowed (laughs) such radical thoughts, I suppose is the nicest thing we could say about that. Papa Thomas' side of the Chudley family grew up on a rural estate in what was then called Devonshire, now called Devon. It's in the southeast corner of the UK. It was very rural. And there was this radical thinking writer woman living there. It wasn't her ideal situation, but what she said of their home was, What you want in conversation, you make up for in books. Well, books can be friends. Absolutely. So um, speaking of friends, his mama was, let's call her grandmama, was a friend of our old friend, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. So if you want to get an idea on what intellectual circle she ran in, there you go. She attended when she was in town. Salons argued her points. It was philosophical, thought very, very deeply. Maybe that was helped by not being in society all that much, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you have time to consider your opinions. She is most famous, perhaps, for a work called The Lady's Defense, or The Bride Counselor Answered, in which she takes apart this sermon that she thought was extremely offensive and just kind of like an open letter to him. Like, how dare you? Blah, blah, blah. Yes, I get this. But what about this? And she functionally... um maybe came out against marriage. She said, if you could avoid marriage, that's probably the best until society values you. And also, in general, please realize, ladies, that you are a person. Mm -hmm. Radical for the time, possibly radical even now. Yeah. (laughs) And that's why she's called a proto-feminist. She was laying the groundwork, ladies. Well, let's go down a generation. Do you remember how, let's see, I think... We talked about this during the Jane Austen podcast, or if you've read Mansfield Park, the advancement in rank in the armed forces was made by, yes, doing a good job. Okay. But often your career in the military, your upward mobility depended on who you knew or who you were related to. Now, I don't want to downplay Papa's military success or leadership. He did kick Heine. He did take names. He took Spanish ships. Most (laughs) importantly, that is where the money is. But his family had deep deep blood ties to the Duke of Marlborough, not our friend Consuelo's husband, but the OG, the first Duke, married to the Queen's best friend, or as they say in the movie, Queen Anne's favorite. Mm. Leaving that there. (laughs) And through that connection, I mean, a direct connection, he was given a plum position and became the Lieutenant Governor of the Royal Hospital at Chelsea, which had been opened uh, 20 or so years ago as a hospital for the relief of, and I quote, such land soldiers as are or shall be old, lame, or infirm in ye service of the crown, spelled with an E at the end. (laughs) The Royal Hospital at Chelsea goes way back, but we know it now because it is where the Chelsea Flower Show is held every year, except for, of course, during COVID. 
It was originally opened in 1692, which would have been just before Papa Thomas was born. And within a month, it was filled to capacity with 476 veterans. 330 years later, they're still wearing the same uniforms, which is a red jacket and a black tricorn hat. They don't wear them every day. They wear them for show. If you were watching the Queen's Jubilee celebrations, there were several of them walking the crowd and taking pictures with people. That's cool. They're wearing the same outfit. To us, you know, the red coat and the black tricorn hat doesn't have such a fond memory. Thank you, Revolutionary War. But to these people, this is a tradition, and it goes way back to the 1600s. There is evidently a tradition very similar to Big Block of Cheese Day on Mm -hmm. the West Wing, where cheesemongers from all over Britain, they send their best wares to the Chelsea Hospital, and they ceremoniously cut one with a sword, Mm -hmm. and then everyone eats it. Right. And it's like, that's the whole deal. (laughs) And they do it every year, and they have done for at least decades and possibly centuries. The British are awesome for traditions. (laughs) (laughs) So despite the family Chudley's deep pockets and wealth, this particular family unit, Thomas and Henrietta, who's called Harriet, are not wealthy at all. But they are living in a very luxurious apartment on the hospital grounds because that's where Papa's working. And so they start a family. Thomas, <laughs> all these names, Thomas Jr., should we call him that? I mean, even though he's like the 18th Thomas in this family. Thomas came about six years after they got married. And three years later, little baby Elizabeth was born in 1721. This job, thank goodness, came with an apartment. It's called a grace and favor apartment. You know, real estate that's owned, nominally by the crown, is given to people holding certain positions or certain members of the royal family, William and Kate Middleton, etc. <laughs> what a benefit this was, though, for the second son in this family, i.e. not the heir. He was not the inheritor of all of the filthy lucre, unfortunately, when his father died. He received a moderate bequest and one of the lesser estates. Now, I will tell you, I am living in my lesser estate. (laughs) As am I. So so I'm a little bit less um, sympathetic, but he did receive a cash bequest, which he was smart enough as he had an income to invest that bequest and save for his future. I'm so sorry to say that the same financial house of cards that got a hold of Lady Mary Wortley Montague and uh, stressed her out for a while and basically made paupers of a lot of the nobility absolutely devastated the Chudley family. The South Sea Company was an investment firm that was running on the ragged edge of mm, the black market or a scheme. Let's call it a pyramid scheme. That's the short version. It survived for a while by paying original investors from new investors' money. You know, classic pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme, I guess, would be more appropriate. The um, fashionableness of this South Sea Company sucked in people who might otherwise have been nervous when they see their, quote, betters investing, Mm -hmm. then they throw their money after it too. High profits were promised. What could go wrong? And then it became unsustainable. And all of Papa's investments vanished. Vanished. Ultimately, right after his daughter was born, he had to sell his military commission for some get-along cash. Speaking of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, she kind of weaves through in and out through the story quite a bit. But at this point in time, let's drop this situation into history because we can. 
In episodes 186 and 187, we covered this story. The year before Elizabeth's birth is when Lady Mary came back from Turkey, began inoculating first her daughter, then got the king and queen involved, and they were inoculating those seven prisoners at Newgate Prison, the ones that volunteered, there's quote marks there, for those inoculations in return for having their sentences commuted. So that is a year before our Elizabeth Chudley is born. So luckily for Papa and the family, there was this position to keep them in a societally upward way. The surviving children, remember there were four losses. And I often say this, we just say, oh, four children died. But think about Mm -hmm. the women of the past didn't love their children any less. Right. They just had to bear the loss, you know. So we say four losses, but it means a lot. Well, the surviving children grew up in a giant establishment with extensive grounds to play in, wholesome and plentiful food, and hundreds of grandpas that loved (laughs) to see them and tell them stories. There were no grandmas until 2009. (laughs) That's pretty recent to not have any grandmas (laughs) on the premises. And I love seeing those videos of when they kind of settle a preschool at one end of a retirement community, you Mm -hmm. know? Oh, yeah. And the two populations live together. Mm -hmm. I mean, on a a smaller extent, there were other employees that also had children that these children could play with, etc. But for the most part, it was preschoolers, you know, <laughs> being being treated well by hundreds of grandpas. So I love that. I love that. And this idyllic childhood could have launched Elizabeth comfortably into adulthood. This is a very respectable neighborhood, place to grow up, position to be in. Think about how many people she would have known had she grown up in that place. All those men are related to somebody, right. you know, that would have been the most superior networking launch pad. Absolutely. And Elizabeth had the personality to meet all those people. She was very friendly. She was very chatty. She never lacked for attention from men in uniform. That was her life. You know, she loved living amongst all these veterans. It was exciting for her, and she certainly learned a lot. But alas, when she was only five years old, her papa died young, very young. He was only 38. And Mama and the two children had to leave their home because this apartment was tied to the job and a new guy was coming to live in it and take up the position. So Mama was, number one, a scrapper. And number two, not without resources. There is some advantage to being from a big family. Yeah. (laughs) Though the family did go from the lovely string quartet environment (laughs) of the hospital to basically the punk rock soundtrack of... 17th century London, you know, Mm -hmm. it's crowded, noisy, stinky, but it was also very exciting and full of relatives. Much was made of Mama having to, quote, take in a female boarder to make ends meet in their new London abode and that she had to, quote, rent the estate in Devon to one of her cousins for a time. But read between the lines. And this seems like Pride and Prejudice. You know what I mean? This is Pride and Prejudice poverty. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm now reduced to a five bedroom house in a lovely garden with only two servants. Right. Very genteel poverty, I think is a good way to put it. Pinky up poverty. <laughs> This was not the poverty of hand-to-mouth existence. You know, this was the poverty of keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with this upper-class lifestyle on a middle-class income, you know. So we can still play the violin, but it's smaller than we might have used otherwise. (laughs) Brother Thomas, of course, was given the, quote, real education as he was the boy. And he went off to Eton, that bastion of upper-class networking. 
Elizabeth's job at this stage would be to develop herself into a woman that would attract a man. I hate to put it that way, but that's the way it was. She was given an education. She would go from one uncle's house to another and study with her cousins, with their tutors. You know how people say, I never learned that. Well, it doesn't mean that it wasn't presented to you. Same thing for Elizabeth. She was fluent in French. She was given tutors in Latin and geography and dancing and needlework and training in how to run a household going from one house to another. Well, and I would like to say household management means household management when it's assumed you're going to be managing a house full of servants. Right. Not household management, let me make you some beans on toast. Right. And <laughs> use yesterday's coffee grounds right. to make you a cup or whatnot. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so even though she was pulled out of the bird chirping, idyllic early childhood that she had, This isn't a horrible childhood. You know, she is learning what she needs to. She became a very excellent conversationalist. Like I said, she was not a great student. She had very little concentration. Later in life, she said, I should hate myself if I found myself in the same mood for two hours together. So she had a very fluctuating personality. Are we 100% sure she's not a Gemini? So she did receive a not unusual education for a woman of her time and class, educated to a point, but not enough to be a monster, how to put it. You know what? Three cheers for the monsters. That's all I'm saying. Three cheers for the monsters. Let's overcome. You know how we always say, quote, she was allowed to read anything in the library. And that leads like Lady Mary Wortley Montague or Charlotte Bronte into a devouring of all printed material and a quest for knowledge, for knowledge's sake. And here it was more like, oh, thanks for the permission. And then there was like a sound of crickets throughout. Yeah. (laughs) She was not a self-educated woman. She had no motivation in that direction. In the words of Elizabeth Bennett of Pride and Prejudice, those who chose to remain idle certainly might. (laughs) So I think she had the same sort of education as the Bennett sisters Mm -hmm. at home. You know, like, here's some books for those of you who wish to read them. Mary Bennett availed herself of that. Elizabeth Bennett availed herself of that. The younger sisters did not. All seemed to be suitable, you know? Right, right. And she's being allowed to visit a lot of libraries in these relations houses. In one of these houses, her uncle's house, it was so lavish that the giant carved wooden doors would end up at Hearst Castle in California in more modern times. That's how treasured they were. That's how opulent of a life she's getting to, I don't don't say live as much as grow up in. Well, much of her time growing up was spent at the country house. Remember that subsidiary estate that they had called Hall Manor? Kind of a big, they say farmhouse, but you know, it means, <laughs> it's like when we say cottage. The thing that she loved to do here, she got obsessed with living in the outdoors, fishing, walking, excursions in a carriage with young companions, tending to a flower garden, just 
everything outside really spoke to her spirit and she was allowed to uh, indulge herself in that way. And gardening is a skill, certainly. Oh, and at this time, it's a social skill. Again, we talked about that in Lady Mary Wortley Montague's episode. You know, it was very much a social thing to develop your garden, well, design it and have other people do the actual planting um, and have people come over and admire and compare and contrast. It was a symbol of wealth to have these lush gardens. So she grew up in the country within striking distance of her much better off cousins in the Grand Estate, not too far away. And she did benefit from their teachers and their libraries and their house and their social connections. But pure chance had given these cousins money and opportunities that she, Elizabeth, was going to have to scrap for. Again, here she was in the upper class with no money. We ourselves can get a Burberry trench coat off of Parshmark. <laughs> That's so funny. I was looking at those last week. <laughs> yeah. And and suddenly we look fancy. Well, her situation is significantly more complicated. So she had to lay up a store of charm and vivacity. And this is no situation for shrinking violets or probably not introverts either. I think I would have fared poorly in those terms, but I would have been in the library so perfectly happy. And then <laughs> Elizabeth, when Elizabeth was 17, her uncle, the baronet, father to the enviable girl cousins in the grand house, died. And since he had daughters, but no sons, as and I quote the book from before, the baronetcy, he had only daughters. Mm-hmm. The new baronet was, if we would like to put a drum roll in here, <laughs> Elizabeth's brother Thomas. It was a lateral move. The title came back over to Elizabeth's side of the family. At age 17, he's just 17, and he is now the fifth Chudley baronet. Now, his uncle's will was also generous in giving his heir, this son, significant property and money. Hooray! The Chudleys are moving on up. But alas for our Chudleys, his widow, their Aunt Frances, threw up objections. This wasn't her husband's estate to leave. She said that by the terms of their marriage agreement, the estate was to remain in her family by blood only, like i.e. her daughter. She herself had been one of a family of only daughters with no sons, and each sister had been a co-heiress, and that was the deal coming in. She had daughters. This was her property. The daughters were to inherit it from her. The title? Sure, he can have it. Long live the fifth baronet. But no, my friends, the buck, all the bucks all the pounds, all the ducats and florins, etc. stays here in my pocket. And there was a battle. Troublesome. Well, also in her defense, she brought a lot of money into the marriage. So she helped to buy this estate, you know, and improve upon it. No, I'm not saying she's wrong. And in fact, the courts also didn't think she was Mm -hmm. wrong. The case went on for years and years and years. In fact, still active years later in 1741, when Thomas went off to war, he fought on Empress Maria Theresa's side as to who would take control of Austria. And as we will know, Marie Antoinette's mother did take over. He fought on the winning side. So um, hooray. So that's the only good news, because unfortunately, Thomas himself died. And with him, possibly, Elizabeth's chances for a good marriage. Because now, not only does her family not have a lot of money, she doesn't have the mail required to broker that marriage. She doesn't have a man in her corner at all. And that's what she needed at this time. It wasn't that she just couldn't attract a guy. It had to be, you know, worked out amongst the families and there was no one to work it out. 
And the uncles were just dying like flies. Well, then a man did come. A knight in shining armor, I don't know. And there is so much mythology on how they met. Like she was taming a wild horse in in Dartmoor and he (laughs) came along and blah, blah, blah. Or he saw her across a crowded room and was struck by her beauty or whatnot. I, you know, he was a friend of one of her uncles, this Earl of Bath. He'd actually been on the board of directors of the hospital with her papa. I mean, that's too boring of a story to make it through the generations, I think. He also had a 14-year-old daughter who he absolutely adored, who had just died and was about the same age as Elizabeth. So he looked at Elizabeth kind of as a surrogate in some ways to his daughter. So I can see why he would want to help her. But there's a lot of rumors circulating about their relationship. You're right. And I also don't want to go into it. So he had influence at court, this man. And he had written to a friend that he regarded Elizabeth as, quote, his daughter to whom he has given a real estate. And no one knows what that is. (laughs) He sees her as his daughter. Like, think about if he had written that to someone and then it came out that they were having a thing. That's Mm -hmm. not good. Mm -mm. I mean, that's what he wrote to his dear friend. So I think that's where we can safely say it was. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I agree. Because in the household of the Princess of Wales, two positions had become available. These maids of honor, a position for a young lady of about the same age as the Princess of Wales was needed to fill these positions that kept getting empty because people kept marrying up them maid of honors like they used to marry the Harvey girls right out of the Harvey houses, you know. (laughs) It was like they'd show up, the men would marry them and they you know, needed to hire someone else. And those positions were available. She was the right age. She was the right family. She was in need of a position that would give her exposure to the kind of men she needed to fulfill her career, the only career available for women at the time, which was to become, say it with me, a wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she did, in effect, have a male in her corner to help her get a marriage. Obviously, not as close as her father or her brother. But I mean, he did what he could. And I think that that was huge to recommend her for one of these positions. So this is a giant favor, him recommending her for this position. Why? You know, any close friends of my husband would help Jed Graham Mm -hmm. if they heard of the perfect opportunity for Jed Graham. Right. And I don't know why everyone has to put... Uh, here's a new word I wrote down, scurrilosity. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I don't think it's a real world, but word, but I don't know why people always have to put a bad face on it when on the face of it, I think it's perfectly legitimate for a friend of the family to go, oh, wait, I know the perfect person. Right. And that perfect position was in the court of the Prince of Wales with the Princess of Wales. Her name is Augusta. She was German-born. She was about the same age as Elizabeth. All the things that they look for in a maid of honor, Elizabeth qualified. Augusta is right now, at this period of time, the highest ranking royal woman in England as the queen had died some years before. So you have a king who is unmarried. You have the prince and princess of Wales, you know, second place. But just like in the last generation, there was giant rivalry between the court of the king and the court of the prince and princess of Wales. The king, George II, and the prince of Wales, Frederick, did not have a good relationship at all. Two very different courts, very different, not only in the men that led them, but in the vibe of the court. I hate to use that word, but that's what it was. George and Frederick had not gotten along 
ever since Frederick was born, he wasn't even raised in the same household as his father, the king. He was raised with his great-great-grandmother. So they sent him out. From birth, George was not a fan of Frederick. I don't know what that is. Pheromones? It's so crazy to me. But hooray, Elizabeth took up her place as companion, servant, and decorative element. Let's not put too fine a point on it. (laughs) In a household known for its intelligence, there were political discussions there. Philosophy, literature, all in evidence, lively with music, poets, events, and guests. And the king's court had become sort of rule-bound, old-school, boring. Mm -hmm. The prince and princess of Wales's circle was the place to be. And all of the maids of honor attracted attention, of course, without movies or TV. (laughs) Royalty and the royalty adjacent were the celebrities of the day. This position that she was in led to early marriages for a lot of these maids of honor. It was a very good springboard to future life. And Elizabeth immediately attracted a circle of well-born admirers. She had magnetismo. (laughs) She was described as, quote, fascinating and evidently quite the most beautiful woman at court. To everyone's credit, these two factors seemed to carry equal weight. She had charm and beauty, and some were attracted to one and some were attracted to the other. Someone once said of her, quote, she had little of the goddess and plenty of the woman, and her charm lay not in her beauty, but in her piquant expression, her varied moods, and her fascinating manner. So everything about her is appealing. Men are attracted to her, and women are not threatened by her. They enjoy her company. So that's perfect for a person in a maid of honor position. And I often wonder if that is a carefully cultivated personality. Mm -hmm. Because she might not have paid attention in her geography lessons, but she certainly paid attention in her interpersonal relationship lessons. Right. She seemed to have a talent. Like, uh, you know, I don't know if it was in instinct or she had like the Clara Bow quote it about her. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But she was really good at that. And the young Duke of Hamilton was pulled into her orbit. Dukes are pretty rare and don't come on the market very often. <laughs> How do we like us returning over the marriage market to the yeah, other side? Doesn't that sound good? There are at any time only 20 to 40-ish dukedoms in the UK. Um, precise numbers vary due to extinctions, new creations, and some people holding more than one dukedom at a time. But let's just say, according to the standards of the time, if your career is marrying, this would be straight to the top of your career. As it began to get serious, there were even rumors at court of a secret engagement, who's to say, but the whole concept of this boy, he's only 19, this Mm -hmm. boy who had royal Stuart Scottish blood in his veins, no less, was going to marry this person, as charming as she was, this person, this daughter of a who, without even a title, the joke will be on them as you see, with regard to who he actually marries. But here's the story you'll read that certain high-ranking members at court, possibly including her boss, the mistress of the robes, also a Hamilton, started a disinformation campaign, telling the poor man this and that about his beloved, which to his credit, he refused to take seriously. Who cares? Even, dang it, you know? (laughs) He doesn't have to care about anything. He's a duke, whatever, you know? Good for him. And so then they decided, this is just a story, mind you, to spread rumors about him to her 
infidelity was the big one. Guess what he said about you, etc. He's laughing behind your back. And the story goes, again, a story that she, unsophisticated with court intrigue, got upset and broke up with him. And his relatives whisked him away on his grand tour and out of reconciliation distance. And maybe, maybe if the secret engagement was true, she had been engaged, she had been about to be a duchess, and now she's back to nothing. Or, honestly, some historians say that this was all made up. He had no intention of marrying and they were just flirtatious good friends. And he went on that grand tour with no obligations to her or feelings of any kind whatsoever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a better story. I mean, I don't know. Part of her job, you know, in addition to, you know, keeping the princess company and reading to her and whatever was to be, you know, the bell of the ball. And she was very good at it. If it was a hundred years later and this was like Bridgerton, she would have been considered maybe a diamond, you know, Mm. Mm -hmm. but we're not even in the, we're not in the same era (laughs) at this point, but he had a very outgoing personality. She had a very outgoing personality, common flirtatious language could have appeared to be a relationship when both parties knew that it was just play. Right. And had it been serious and had this actually been a breakup, a breakdown of expectations, here she is in court having to keep on a good face. And I was reminded of Kate Middleton. Remember when she and Prince William broke up in 2007 and she had to keep it all together? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just saying. You remember the year? Remember, I don't know why they broke up. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, I just I I suddenly was reminded of that. She had to appear unconcerned. And so the fact that she does sort of seem unconcerned is either real or fake. There's no way to know. Mm. And it didn't help that a girl that she started with on the same day in that position had already left to become a countess. Mm hmm. The clock seems to be ticking. Is it really ticking? There seems to be a lot of pressure. Just hold on. But, you know, just just put the brakes on. Just be cool. But whatever. The pressure is mounting a little bit, at least in her mind. Luckily for her, in the interest of keeping things out of the public eye, the court was taking a vacation from itself. The royal family was headed for one of their retreats that simply don't have room for a big entourage. Convenient. So the extra personnel were released to go wherever. You can go wherever you want, but you can't stay here. Elizabeth chose to take up an invitation from her cousin, John Merrill, who had a lovely estate in the country. Just what you need for a broken spirit. And I am not, I have to be honest with you, 100% understanding the cast of characters here, okay? Because Elizabeth's Aunt Hanmer seems to have lived there at the house to where her husband had come home from war to die. So is she the dower person Like they used to live there and then her nephew inherited and she still lives there. That's the impression I got. Okay. Yeah. So either she lived there or she accompanied her niece 
to her nephew's house. So either way, she's present, right? We can agree on that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And she's there to be a chaperone to Elizabeth because you can't have her out doing things by herself, heaven forbid. But Elizabeth has her sights on just pure recreation. She wants to fish. She wants to play cards. She wants to ride horses and hang out with her relations. She doesn't really want to change her life. She just wants to have her summer break, just like every other college student. (laughs) Right. And the country was refreshing. Yes. But after a while... Admit this, you get tired of the ticking of the clock, don't you? You get tired of the same, you know, app or in in this era, same game of cards that you keep playing. (laughs) Oh, we're playing whist again? Oh, yippee, whist? Let's play whist. (laughs) You know what we should do? Let's play whist. (laughs) But if you set off in your carriage at a trot, I did the math, in 20 minutes, the whole party could attend the biggest annual event in the neighborhood. The Winchester Horse Races. It was a big C and B scene event, and Elizabeth was there. All of the possible vices were catered for. Gambling, there was drinking, there was eating, except for, let's see, all the seven deadly sins except maybe sloth. I don't know exactly what sloth is, but we certainly had pride and gluttony and lust and (laughs) greed and wrath. We had all the other ones, but maybe not sloth. I'm not sure if there were afternoon naps or what, but it was exhilarating whirlwind of novelty. And Elizabeth met a pretty exciting man there. 20-year-old Augustus Hervey. He was a handsome rogue of a naval man, another man in uniform. You know, she's a sucker for those. He was from an aristocratic family, but again, he was the second son. So he was broke and in the military. However, as the grandson of the Earl of Bristol, a second son with a sickly, unmarried elder brother, I'm sorry to say, made him another layer of attractive to the anxious mamas. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, this man was a little spicy, too, because he had been sent to sea at the age of 11. What movie do I watch that has Russell Crowe in it where these little tiny dudes have rank and responsibility, master and commander? And that's actually based on historical fact. It was very common for people to get sent as early as 11 and some recorded instances as low as the age of eight to see, to receive initially training and then to literally become a midshipman and then a lieutenant. It's so shocking to me. But yeah, the Navy skewed young. And now Mr. Hervey was 20. He had been traveling the world for nine years. So this man had seen some things from a very, very early age. And not only that, this Hervey, Augustus, was the son of the Hervey we talked about during the Lady Mary Wortley Montague episode. Augustus's papa trailed scandal and rumor behind him like a cloud of dust. He wore an aura of scandal. He actually was the deep-seated enemy of our Elizabeth's mentor that had gotten her that job at court. Like, they were battle royale with cheese. (laughs) With cheese? Yes. We talked about him a little during the episodes 186 and 187. And honestly, I don't think we want to get into this mm, R-rated Augustus Papa here, but we'll give you a, a link. Anyway, so Habanero Spice, dad, had died and 
Jalapeno Spice, Small Spice, Augustus, was wooing our Elizabeth at the Winchester races. Um, He didn't have current money, you know, but he was from a considerably wealthy and famous in Naval Circle's family and was definitely in line to possibly inherit it all. And here's where this weird story comes in about Elizabeth's friend, the Duke of Hamilton. Okay, you will read that possibly the Duke of Hamilton, the boyfriend that was or was not, evidently kept writing to Elizabeth from his European tour. But as the story goes, Aunt Hanmer was intercepting these letters either because she was also intoxicated by Augustus or from monetary payments from Duke Hamilton's uh, relatives Mm -hmm. to prevent such a match. So what a weird scenario. Or like I said before, maybe none of that happened. And literally, he never put pen to paper. And this man was her first noble conquest. Either way, as far as Elizabeth was concerned, no Duke was coming to put a ring on it. (laughs) So what we have here is two big flirts. I mean, she is a flirt for a living, right? And he is right. he is a rake. So what happens when flirts meet and it's summertime and there's, you know, young hormones going and they're flirting and they're flirting. And they have extremely ineffectual chaperonage. <laughs> what they should not do is what these two did. And in the immortal words of Justin Timberlake, this just can't be summer love. L-O-V-E. <laughs> okay, I don't know that song, but that is amazing that we got a Beyonce and a Justin Timberlake reference unknown to each other. So in the middle of the night on August 4th, 1744, everyone met up at a chapel on the premises. The vicar married them by the light of one candle. And afterward, each group that was in the building made their way separately back to the house. La, 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 just out for a midnight walk. (laughs) You know, Mr. Merrill and his house guest friend went one way. Aunt Hanmer and her lady's maid Anne went a different way. And Mr. and Mrs. Augustus Hervey snuck right upstairs to a bedroom and locked the door. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Three days later, the groom was on a ship. To work, you know, the Navy won't wait. And he was going to be gone for at least months, if not years, if not forever. What on earth made them do this? They had to keep it a secret. I mean, number one, fear of his family. He was technically at 20, a minor and could not marry without parental permission. But mainly because maids of honor at court had to be, you know, maids. They cannot be married Mm -hmm. and she couldn't afford to lose her salary. I mean, for high flyers like this, that's actually sort of pitiful. Fine. But why do it in the first place? My theory is a line had been crossed and witnessed. Like, now you have to marry my cousin to save her honor. Mm. Even though, what a weird line to be insisting on because conventions at the wedding were not upheld. There were no bans of marriage, which is basically the ancestor of, you know, anyone with an objection, speak now or forever hold your peace. But it was like a long, drawn out, weeks long process of reading the people's names from the pulpit in the parish where they were going to be married and just waiting to see if anyone jumped up and shrieked a warning, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't even written into the church record which is always done, it just gives me the impression that they were just kind of like playing church. 
There was no marriage license. Nothing. Not even a special license. There wasn't even rings. There was nothing. The only thing was they stood at an altar in the dark and someone said, do you? And they said, I do. And then they consummated the marriage. Well, there was an act couple of decades after this wedding happened to prevent this very thing from happening, where a wedding had to be overseen by an Anglican priest within a church and entered into the register. It was called the Clandestine Marriage Act of 1753 and became a crime punishable by transportation to the colonies. And this kind of thing was the cause Mm -hmm. of that legislation because too much property and children's legitimacy was bound up in things like this. So they weren't the only ones, I guess, uh, is what I'm saying. No, 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 I doubt they were. It's literally madness, though, dumb and inexplicable in their society. But there it is in the background from now on. Was it real? Was it binding? There is the question. But two years go by. Two pretty unsuccessful years for career advancement in the Navy for him. He was sent to a place where he could neither receive the bounty from capturing foreign ships nor prove himself in a theater of war. So he was stuck on a career plateau and pretty frustrated. Now, on her part, there's two frustrating years of having to reject perfectly good suitors. Including our old friend, Lord Hamilton, who came back and started to woo her, but she had to turn him down. I mean, she had to play hard to get because she really was impossible to get. Yeah, so bummer. He came back from his grand tour with a new outlook on life, probably some experience, not to (laughs) to find a point on it, and a marriage proposal that she had to reject. And they were both very bewildered and they both fell apart. She couldn't explain herself, and he couldn't explain it either. He's the catch of the century. Mm -hmm. So Augustus and his wife had one more, should they say, meeting before he left for a new assignment. The relationship was cold. They had nothing in common. It reminds me of all of those soldiers that got married right before World War II, and then they came home to find a wife they didn't know. Mm -hmm. They married the girl out of the soda fountain down the corner and then like went away to war. And then they came back and they were all different people. Right. They'd been through different things. They didn't know each other. They didn't love each other. What, you know, what is even happening? Nobody was waving a handkerchief and crying that he left. It was like, whoo, he's out of here. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, after he was gone, she discovered that she, a nominally unmarried maid of honor, was expecting a baby. Fortunately for her, like the only fortunate thing is that it was right before summer break again. And she also had a great relationship with Princess Augusta. Elizabeth was able to rent some rooms in her old neighborhood in Chelsea. She was able, with Princess Augusta's help, to get medical care from the physician that was on call at Lester House, where they lived. Maybe not the best medical care, but she also <laughs> had she also had midwives. You know, she was doing all the right things you're supposed to do when you're pregnant. The reason I laughed, if you are a new listener, is that we have this running um, distaste for 18th century medicine, <laughs> where we're like, yeah. you'd be better hiding under the bed than having these dudes come to your house. Right, right. But at least there was a midwife, so we have a good chance. Well, I'm sorry to say that little Augustus, named after his papa, delivered in secret, again with the secrets, I'm sorry to say that 
Elizabeth's little boy died at about four months old, and she was full of grief, but had to keep it all inside. Secrecy was paramount. She could not let it show. And I don't know if she channeled it into her personality, but she roared back to court. She was publicly the toast of the town. Had she been free, she could have had any title she wanted. And I am thinking that, alas, if she and Hervey had just been able to button their faces, <laughs> their faces, <laughs> and keep it all inside and just let the past go. They could have made this work, but Mr. Hervey was in some kind of weird possessive mood as his star began to rise at work, and he was irritated at her, quote, conduct. Well, I've been gone. Never mind his serial infidelity from place to place (laughs) in the tens, if not hundreds, and the fact that her behavior was literally covering their secret. Right. You know, and he constantly referred to her as Miss Chudley in his correspondence. They could have pulled it off. But for some reason, he was obstinate, even though this is the time where they swore off each other. They sort of determined to separate. And so she turned herself into sort of a radiant social floodlight. Everyone was just a helpless moth to her flame, culminating in the event that she's the second most famous four. There was a masquerade ball, and Elizabeth decided to dress as Iphigenia, a mythological princess who was sacrificed to appease the goddess Artemis. She showed up at this party in this very clingy, nude fabric-covered dress. It didn't actually show it was underneath, but it showed enough that people thought they were seeing through her dress. One gentleman was staring at her bosom and asked if he could touch it. And she said she would put her hand someplace even softer. So the guy gave her his hand. She took it and put it on the top of his head. (laughs) And that, according to the story, was the King of England. And uh, immediately he thought, well, hello. And rumor started to circulate that perhaps the king might be interested in acquiring himself a new mistress. Oh, no. Well, fully half the court was so offended and hated the whole thought of this outfit. And fully half the court, including the king, was super intrigued by it. (laughs) Mary Wortley Montague was not intrigued by it. She wrote, quote, her dress, or rather undress, was remarkable. She was Iphigenia for the sacrifice, but so naked that the maids of honor were so offended that they would not speak to her. So, well, whatever, girls, don't speak to me. Now, she managed to sidestep any involvement with the king. So that was good. But she did manage to get a lucrative court position for her mother out of this outfit. Out of the king's admiration for her, her mother was nominated to be the housekeeper at Windsor Castle, largely a supervisory administrative position. She wasn't getting her hands dirty or, you know, walking about with a mop or anything. This position paid four times more than Elizabeth herself made at court. So that was good. She took care of her mother. Now, as for Elizabeth herself, this costume might have been an ill-judged stunt. She started to appear as an ever-increasingly nude drawing in newspapers and pamphlets, each one more salacious than the last. Now, was this outfit kind of a desperate bid for 
relevance or for attention because as time goes on, of course, younger ladies are going to start appearing at court. Notably, a pair of sisters called the Gunning Sisters, who had a very clever mother, who placed them in court, and if they didn't just scoop up our old friend, the Duke of Hamilton, first time out, and then the second sister scooped another nobleman right out from under the whole court, and they've amused. I mean... And then Elizabeth is getting older. She's like 27 at this point. And then Prince Frederick died, and what is she now? A has-been in a court that no longer has the future queen in it. What it did have was the future king, the future George III, was the son of Augusta. And Augusta was pregnant with their ninth child when Frederick died. How hard could that have been? So now she's the mother of nine children, and she is the Dowager Princess of Wales. She does have a title. She does have a purpose in life. She's raising the future king. But the household, formerly the glittering center of society, sort of turned in on itself a little. Imagine, if you will, or fast forward to Queen Victoria's household years later after Albert died. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of what happened here. It became a very serious place. And though Elizabeth was a trusted companion, what place would there be for her now? You know, the volume got turned way down. Well, as it turns out, the volume being turned down made it the exact right environment for the next character in our story. Enter the Duke of Kingston, Evelyn Pierpont, who we've actually met before on this very podcast. Remember that Lady Mary Wortley Montague had been a Pierpont before her marriage. She had had a brother who died of smallpox at a very young age in the very same wave of the disease that, quote, destroyed her own great beauty. Now, he left two extremely small children, and those children are the ones that come into the story now. They're all grown up, a boy and a girl. The boy, Evelyn, had ascended to his grandpa's title when he was only 15. He has been a duke for a long time, with nearly unlimited money, an extraordinarily handsome face. He was very, very amiable, and well-spoken of everywhere except maybe by a couple of haters who thought that his shyness meant that he was stupid. Narrator, he was not stupid. (laughs) No. And when he met the then 29-year-old Elizabeth, he himself was 38. That is very age-appropriate, as far as I'm concerned. And it seemed to be Thunderbolt City on both sides. Kingston actually sent his French mistress of over a decade back to her country with a generous annuity, and Elizabeth and Kingston began a relationship. It was really pretty open, wouldn't you say? Yes, it absolutely was. It was pretty open with his French paramour as well, who also, like Elizabeth, was married. Unlike Elizabeth, she had left her small children in France when she came to live with Kingston. So she's been there a long time. And now she's gone back. I mean, he took care of her, but... She's making the exact same money as the former mistress that Elizabeth's mother is making as the housekeeper at Windsor Castle. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) it's the exact same amount of money. So those are equal jobs right there. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if it was his high rank that made it okay, or um, this is just a theory, the fact 
fact in quotes that the news of her secret marriage had been percolating for some time now had pretty well leaked into the public at least unconsciousness mm-hmm. and the fact that in the Georgian period it was okay for married people to have affairs you know uh so be it in this era of family arranged marriage if you find true love or kindred spirits or whatever you purport to find outside of the bonds of marriage as long as everyone acts cool in public and no one freaks out or like tells tales or embarrasses people whatever it's fine Uh so you know who's to say if that theory holds water but i almost think for anyone who suspected she'd been married that this affair would be perfectly fine with them. Like, oh, I see. I see. They have an arrangement. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, anyone that thought she was married would probably be 100% fine with this. Right. Kingston's sister, Lady Frances Meadows, had been a huge fan of Madame de Latouche. That would be the French mistress. Madame de Latouche, she couldn't marry Kingston, so she couldn't have children. Lady Frances had two sons, so they were in line to inherit this vast wealth when their unmarried uncle passed away. Yeah, Madame de Latouche could have had children all day. Right. But they wouldn't have been legitimate and therefore wouldn't have been in line to inherit. Mm -hmm. But here comes Elizabeth, who's 29 years old. You know, she's still of childbearing age. And so there's the rumor that she's married and there's people that are sophisticated that know or don't know and know is all in quotes because who knows? Nobody knows. That's the thing. That's why there's so much attention on her. (laughs) If she is not married, a 29-year-old new wife is a giant danger to the Meadowses and their hopes for the future and hopes for her future children's inheritance. She's a giant threat. Well, anyway, Elizabeth was still serving as the maid of honor, which is hilarious. Even poems had been published referring to the baby, referring to somehow this mother is still a maid. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I'm guessing no matter what else is happening, the support of royalty means everyone else has to shrug. If they want to stay at court, they got to get along. Well, at last, Elizabeth began to be able to fully participate in the economy. Kingston and Elizabeth would often play cards and Kingston would often lose. And of course, he'd pay his debt. Elizabeth did not, but she took all that debt money and it became seed money for property. She could buy property in her own name. And that's what she did. And honestly, I think it was a giant ruse. I mean, he didn't just lose. I think it was part of an agreement like, here's how I'm going to give you some Mm -hmm. money. Oh, yes. Because her name did not appear in his accounting statements. So he was a very careful man. Elizabeth hosted parties on behalf of her royal friends, and she became a noted society hostess. And the two of them became functionally a boring middle-aged couple. They did what other people did. They had a house or two in London for the season. When the season was over, they would go to their house in the country. When it was spa time, they went to the spa towns. You know, it wasn't any different than what other people were doing. They just had royal friends and entertained them on sort of a grand scale. So all of this like scandal, they're being perfectly respectable. Mm -hmm. Which is at this point, this is an ideal life for her. She can get property in her own name. She is buying property. She's flipping them and selling them and buying something bigger. You know, she's filling her mansions with, you know, who's it's and what's it's a plenty. She's building a house called Chudley House. She can name it after herself. And 
she loves this man who loves her back. This is an ideal situation for her right here for about 20 years. Yes, I uh, referred to her style at Chudley House as maximalist. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually my style, which is, I mean, functionally, it's clutter with its pinky up, which just like people who grew up food insecure sometimes have very, very full pantries. Mm -hmm. She felt that she had security in in things, things that could be sold to realize cash, you know, that and she was very acquisitive and she liked to gather things about her. It made her feel safe, I think. But not just that. Also, she had pleasure with this man in time spent together, quality time. Mm -hmm. They were known to go into the country and go off all day, quote, fishing, which one of the valets said they they took so much food and drink and nonsense with them that each one of these fish probably cost him five guineas a piece. (laughs) Have you read that like the $800 tomato or whatever that book is? No. But the the staff at Kingston House would overpack because their fishing hole was on this one guy's farm, a farmer called Bud, and the house staff wanted to help out the farmer. And Elizabeth and Kingston didn't really feel like hauling all that stuff back, so they would often just drop it off at the Bud's house on the way back. Mm -hmm. And then also one of the servants remembered a curious fact, and I am not understanding this at all. She would request... Lots of pitchers of rum so she could put them in her shoes to keep warm. I don't understand. Unless she lit it on fire. I don't understand (laughs) how that works. Somebody tell me. I don't know. I'm not crazy wealthy like that, that I can do frivolous things like warming myself with rum from my feet. I aspire to that level of just (laughs) frivolousness. Well, again, we're at a nice plateau in our life. We could go on like this happily forever. Curiously, Elizabeth made a move right now that would come back to haunt her. Through the grapevine, she heard that the minister who had performed her clandestine marriage was on his deathbed. And she went there to his house and got him to write proof of the marriage in a registry book for the parish and had her cousin, Merrill, there as a witness and an attorney, and then entrusted the evidence to her cousin to take back to his house. She didn't want it in her house or anywhere where people would think to look for it, but there it was in a book. And to make it more believable, her cousin, ahead of her marriage, wrote the death of his wife as as the first line, and then her marriage as the second line, like it was the regular parish Mm -hmm. book. What did she do this for? Uh, insurance, probably. The French mistress, after all, had been in play for over a decade. And and who's to say Elizabeth wouldn't have ended up the same way? Maybe just a proof of married status if she ever needed to deploy it, but plausible deniability if she didn't. And Augustus's brother is like on the verge of death, which means that the title and the inheritance would go to Augustus. So if she finds herself out in the field, she has a place to go to get Mm -hmm. a title. So it's just in the back. Remember Aunt Hammer's maid? Her name is Anne Craddock. And Anne Craddock was a witness to the wedding. And Anne Craddock, at this point in her life, needs money. So Elizabeth is paying her to be quiet. You know, Anne Craddock is essentially willing to blackmail her and say, you were married. So Elizabeth is saying, nope, here's some money. Just be quiet. And Anne is going along with it at this point. 
So Elizabeth continued to celebrate with royalty even into the new reign of her mistress's son, Prince Frederick, having died young. This is a new young man and his new young wife. It brought a much needed spark back to court life and she's back. She became the patroness of salons, of music events. She encouraged her royal friends to attend these and became right in the center of things again. Her name was everywhere, even across Europe. Her evenings at her house often included the king and queen's diplomatic guests from foreign shores, and the ambassador from Saxony wrote back to his mistress, back home, you know, the mother of the ruler there. Oh, ho, I found someone similar you could be friends with. She's just <laughs> like you. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. obviously. And the electress Maria Antonia of Saxony had just lost her husband. Let me try to think how to explain an elector. An elector was a prince who had the right to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. So you could be a prince and an elector, but the fact that you were an elector made you a higher level prince, like Prince Squared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so electress is a is a big deal to have that. She's an electress consort. Powerful, powerful position, powerful friend. The electress promptly issued an invitation for Miss Chudley to come stay with me in Dresden. I mean, whoa. To expect someone you've never met to go 600 miles in the 1700s to hang out with you <laughs> seems like an invitation you know won't be taken up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to me. But Elizabeth immediately began preparations to go. She had a coach specially built with a potty chair in it. I would like you to fast forward to your last road trip. You're sitting with your friends in your car <laughs> and the guy in the passenger back seat flips the seat up and poops <sighs> on the road as you're driving. And then you open your Funyuns and turn up the radio. <laughs> That's the situation I don't fully understand. <laughs> no. But at least there was a bar under the other seat. Hooray. Which is, you know, illegal now to have a bar under your seat. I don't understand. <laughs> we are so used to privacy that it's hard for me to understand the complete unneed for privacy okay. that people had I'm in the past. I'm just going to point out that about this same time over in Versailles. <laughs> people are pooping on the stairs. Right. But at least they're by themselves. <laughs> and they're just leaving it there where people can step in it for somebody else to clean up. At least this is going on the road where all the horse poo goes, too. Yeah. Well, no, I don't mind where the poop goes. I'm just thinking about the inside of the carriage yes. <laughs> and the awkward conversations. If <sighs> Well, there you go. Well, so uh, rumor was around town that the Duke was maybe going to marry for the sake of getting an heir. And so... I've read this several places, and everyone can just reach back and give her motivations that probably, you know, who's to say? She was going to let him see what the world would be like without her, which would be a gamble, if so. It's a long trip. Yeah. Well, there was no man of the upper class with her, but she did have a coachman and a guard, an armed guard. And she took her own apothecary, as well as some paid lady companions and a musician, so she can turn up the radio. <laughs> While somebody's pooping. <laughs> While somebody's pooping. News of this unusual entourage flew ahead of her. Uh, an upper-class lady traveling by herself in this way, sort of unprecedented. And she sure stopped in at a royal wedding 
on the way over, like you do, Mm -hmm. and was presented formally to the new Queen of Brunswick and was famous for drinking two bottles of wine at this wedding and, quote, wobbling around, unquote, the dance floor. Who has not been there? Who has not been there? I I was intrigued enough to look up 1700s German hangover cures. Oh, okay. Ein Kater is a hangover. Um, It means I have a cat. And I have to tell you, I can't say the word for I am hungover because it sounds like a bad word in English. (laughs) So there's no point saying it because I would just have to bleep it. But the cure seems to be a slice of pickled herring rolled around a pickle. Oh, my God. I think maybe it induces vomiting. Yeah, I was just going to say that's what it would do to me. Oh, my gosh. Nope. Nope. Give me a greasy cheeseburger. And I found a fried green tomato breakfast biscuit with pimento cheese on it. That works great. Okay. Yuck. (laughs) I'm sorry. I am going to post a picture and you are going to take your words back. Okay. Because it is delectable. Okay. I'm sitting here with like, like fried green tomatoes and I like pimento cheese. So I guess I'd and you like biscuits, which British friends are not like shortbread biscuits. They're more like unsweet scones. Right. All right. All right. But I mean, write in if you like the pickled herring and pickle scenario. It's called a roll mop. It still exists. It's still a hangover cure. All right. Well, they moved on to Saxony. And sure enough, the electress found Elizabeth delightful. Delightful. The electress was a composer. She had written operas. She's a musician. She's an artist. They had a lot in common and they took to each other immediately. I wish they'd had the internet. That's how awesome it was. These ladies would have benefited from a Zoom call at least every week. They could have done a podcast. Everybody would listen. Oh, man. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the Duke sort of retreated into a routine. He was missing her very very much that as observers noted might have been the point um a dangerous experiment said one nobleman of her acquaintance but she evidently knew her man the duke was genuinely and giantly relieved to have her back and then one of the noblemen said well this is the end of the Pierponts, the end of the line. <laughs> he is not going to have a legitimate heir. That's how relieved he was mm-hmm. when she came back. He was so happy and it was evident that they're in love. That's the end of the Pierponts. There are no more heirs here. We're never going to have one. Hooray! His younger sister, Francis, and family parked right up. Where will the money go later? Yahoo! We're back. So meanwhile, her husband, Augustus, decided that he would like to marry, that he would like to have an heir, he would like to have children, and he would like to have a divorce. Well, that threw a monkey wrench into everything. She couldn't be divorced without some type of a scandal, and the only way to get divorced would be through the courts. She couldn't deal with that. He wanted to divorce her for cause, for adultery, and she rejected that idea. Society was kind of confused. Surely the Duke will marry you. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that the whole ideal outcome? But knowing her man as she did, she was not sure he'd be able to stand it. She's not sure. He was so retiring and so proper that a prospective wife dragged through the public courts would maybe put him off and she couldn't risk it. And she got a bunch of lawyers to look for a loophole. 
So the loophole was she could sue Augustus for Jack dictation, which essentially is a false declaration of marriage. And this suit is not done through the courts proper. It's done through the ecclesiastical court. So it's a religious loophole. And what this means is if you claim a wedding happened, you have to prove it or no marriage happened and you are forbidden from talking about it anymore. The court met to hear the evidence, and all these servants were called that said, I know her as Miss Chudley, and lots of, oh, I heard a rumor that she was married. Well, were you in the room? No. Well, were you a witness to any part of this? No. Well, then why are you here? Well, I was called, blah, blah, blah. And the one witness that could have said things, they sent her a letter, hey, we need to hear your evidence. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm so old now, I don't remember anything. I am really ill and infirm and beside my mind and can't be relied upon for any reliable evidence. Guess who that was? The actual eyewitness, the one that would have had to lie in court, Aunt Hamner's personal lady's maid, whose name was Ann Craddock. So somebody was helping her decide not to talk. And there's nothing written down as far as they know. You're right. Is that foreshadowing? Did I just spoiler alert you? (laughs) Right away, she got a special license by the Archbishop of Canterbury to get married. Kingston wanted to marry her. He would have done it years ago if he could have, and now he can. And on her 48th birthday, 20 years into their relationship, she became Duchess of Kingston on Hull. Weirdly, friends, society rebelled against, quote, this Chudley farce. I am very confused. And I quote, Her grace was not much troubled with staying at home to receive the compliments of the nobility and gentry as usual on such occasions. Not a single lady of quality or fashion paid her a visit. No, but the king and queen, now at this point, the king is George III, who was one of the kids she used to play with back at Leicester House Court when he was just a toddler. And the Duke and Duchess were presented at court. So, you know, all these people can say, no, I don't believe that that's a real marriage. But the king and queen are saying, welcome to court. Happy marriage. And they still had a coterie of loyal friends. So not everyone abandoned them. And whatever. You find out who your real friends are. And unfortunately, his family seat had burned down during the ascendancy of Madame de la Touche, but he was in the process of rebuilding it. And when it was done, they moved into Thorsby Hall and um, still no longer exists. Honestly, it was torn down in Victorian times and it's a whole new thing again. So it keeps getting reborn like the Phoenix. But <laughs> at the time, it was um, simple and lovely and delightful. And they were able to entertain the people that were real friends in the country. And they sort of started retreating from London society with absolute contentment in doing so. And I would like to quote from a book that said, The Duke had never cared for town life in the first place. At Thorsby, they had everything they could want. Themselves, their hobbies, their friends, in short, all the ingredients for a relaxed and contented old age. Again, we are at a plateau that had we been allowed to continue it, could have sustained us throughout our life. Unfortunately, this blissful time only lasted for four years. 
In July of 1773, the Duke suffered what sounds like a stroke. So Elizabeth brought him to Bath. He was going to take the waters. He was going to breathe the country air. He was going to have the waters pumped into his body to try to flush out whatever was going on. He's drinking up to two pints of this awful water every day. But unfortunately, it was not successful. And on September 23rd at 61, the Duke died. During a thunderstorm, how is that for an omen? Her love for over 20 years, her best friend and her protector. Elizabeth's total breakdown was seen by the court as acting, as histrionics. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that there were not very many practical people witnessing her downfall here. One lady wrote to a correspondent, I am afraid that much will be said that she does deserve, but much more will be said that she does not deserve. Um, and the rumor mill got out of control here. The whole world wanted to see what the will said. And you know, aside from small bequests to servant here or there, all of his worldly goods were left to my wife. The estate itself, the inheritable estate, the income from it was left to her for her entire lifetime as long as she did not remarry. Only after she died, then everything would go to the heir, his nephew, not the eldest one, because he's a mess who's been borrowing using my name. He left the army saying he didn't have to work because he was going to be the inheritor of a large fortune. He let his unit down. He embarrassed me, his family, himself. Here's 800 pounds for him, and that is all. The second son gets everything, but not until Elizabeth dies. You know that family is known for that. Remember we talked, it's the Pierpont way, remember? Lady Mary Wortley mm -hmm. Montague's grandma was so rich because her sister had married wrong and got left one shilling right. or something like that. I mean, this family is known for like, I'm going to bypass you because you are irritating me. Right. God, you got to be careful, don't you? So the Duke of Kingston was not a big fan of his sister and her leeching family, but they sure blamed Elizabeth when this will came out, didn't they? Even though she said she was the one that said that they can have it after she was gone. He was just going to let her take it and leave it to her family, you know, mm -hmm. because he was so angry at their behavior and how they had dragged his name through the mud, etc. And the Meadowses, for that's Francis's last name, his sister, they were angry. They were angry. They were embarrassed. And they lawyered up. And they private investigated up, too. dead and society has lost its mind with meanness as far as I'm concerned. The content of his will has got people all up in arms. People are accusing her of using undue influence on that poor duke. And you know what? If true love is undue influence, 
Sure. You know, <laughs> I'll give it to you. I think it's true love. So, but the cynical nature of the upper crust didn't believe in true love. They actually mocked her for crying when he died. They mocked her for wearing black. They mocked her for feeling grief. Like, you can't have it both ways. Right. Either she's a heartless gold digger or she's genuinely a bereaved widow who loved her husband. And 20 years would have been a long con, you know? <laughs> that very long. Yes. Yes. And she was involved in his will writing, according to his valet. She wanted him to give more to his family. And he said no. The environment of gossip was just too hot. Elizabeth gathered her entourage and her carriage with the potty chair and headed out of town. Her friend, the electress, sent a letter of introduction to the Pope. <laughs> just just a guy, you know, I know a guy in Rome. Yes, she does, the Pope. So she went to Rome and it seemed that summer in Italy was very good for self-care, the time, the space she needed to grieve and restore her spirits, and people were nice to her. But meanwhile, at home, the Meadowses were in full detective mode. That eldest nephew of the Duke, another Evelyn, we'll call him Evelyn, you know, to distinguish them, who had been so embarrassingly and ruthlessly cut out of the will, and I add, by his uncle, not Elizabeth, had decided because he had pre-spent the equivalent of millions of those pounds that he was sure he was going to inherit. You know, that's right. real motivation. He had a great idea to go on the hunt for disgruntled servants. He knew the rumor that Elizabeth had been married. And if he could prove that she was, he could also help to get the will overturned. And if the will was overturned, then he is the next in line. He stood a chance of getting those millions that he's already spent. His family was doing things within the civil courts to try and contest the will. But Evelyn is working on his own, like down in the gutter, trying to find somebody that will give some evidence that she was indeed married. He's paying people off to get this evidence. He's digging deep and dirty. And the network of grudge holders got him in touch with the widow of the preacher who'd performed the marriage. Uh-oh. Who had married another upper servant who the Duke had fired. Uh-oh. Uh -huh. This is not looking good. And someone led him to Aunt Hanmer's lady's maid, Anne, who had seen with her own eyeballs the actual event. Who Elizabeth had not paid her hush money to and who currently was in need of cash. And in addition to this playing in the civil courts to try and get the will overturned, Evelyn playing in the gutter to try to get the will overturned, there's the court of public opinion and it's starting to spin against Elizabeth in a big way, fed by the Meadows family. They're back in England. She's in Rome, you know, so they have a chance to tell people their side. The Meadowses had filed a civil suit in the Chancery Court alleging her marriage was invalid, and that is why they were contesting the will. And Elizabeth's marriage became the topic of gleeful or shocked gossip all over Europe. The scandal was enormous. So after her sojourn in Rome, Elizabeth was headed home and she missed her lawyer's letters that told her that people were looking for her to seize her person and get a hold of her ahead of a court battle. 
So Elizabeth arrived at home to figure out, oh no, I have to vamoose. She turned right around and got right back on a boat to France and started to prepare over the months to fight this. And then worse news arrived to her. She was now subject to a criminal charge of bigamy, which was a felony, punishable in former times by hanging. And now you were just, I say just, transported to the colonies or tossed in prison and certainly deprived of your material possessions if found guilty. And also, in certain cases, you were branded on your thumb. The uh, term around town was burned on the hand. It was a permanent mark of your shame. So Elizabeth did go back to London. She got on her new yacht, which she named the Minerva, and headed back to face these charges. She had to come back to answer the charges or she would be declared an outlaw and lose all her property. There was no way she could not come back. Right. And she had lawyers in England fighting for her this whole time, trying to find the loopholes and the workarounds, and there was nothing. She'd run out of them. When she got to London, she was, of course, arrested. What do we do with this woman of nobility? We Are we going to lock her up in the tower? Which, of course, is what the Meadows family is sitting there going, yes, yes, yes. But no, she wasn't healthy. She was weak. And she had some very wealthy friends pay her bail. And she was sent home with a guard. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, her case had been bumped up into the highest court in England, I think due to its publicity. They needed a court with some power to compel her and to keep her in the country, (laughs) etc. So before this court, full of spectators, appeared with her, her four noble bondsmen. You see, in order to put her in house arrest instead of in prison, she had to prove that there were four noblemen willing to put up large sums of money to prevent her from fleeing. Well, her four bondsmen arrived in court with her to answer the charges of bigamy. Not guilty, she said. Very good. Return for trial on such and such a day. Well, meanwhile, the civil case was dismissed. The judge there said, look, everyone, the ecclesiastical court all those years ago ruled her unmarried. That's why she was free to marry the duke. The will is valid. Case dismissed. Hooray! Okay, this is going to go my way too, probably, this this criminal case. So it was a little bit uplifting. Enter a little bit of media-infused madness. (laughs) Well, again, we're back to the court of public opinion and a very scandalous satire play with a character that was based on Elizabeth, very thinly veiled. The play was called A Trip to Calais by Samuel Foote. And what Samuel did after he wrote this play is he went to Elizabeth and said, I wrote this. How much are you going to pay me not to have it presented? There's letters exchanged between the two of them. Elizabeth, using her connections, was able to prevent this play from getting staged, but the writer had all those letters that Elizabeth had sent him, so he just said, fine, I'm just going to publish these, and he did. So there's all these letters where Elizabeth is trying to defend herself and trying to tell him not to publish this thing and incriminating yourself in some ways, and they're all in the paper for everybody to read. Isn't that exciting? 
Yeah, it made her upcoming court case an exciting spectacle. And in fact, such was the interest among the populace that her trial was moved from what was the private chambers of the House of Lords to the vast expanse of Westminster Hall, where there could be an audience of thousands. And after a delay for Elizabeth's illness, another delay so her friends in the parliament, they could argue, they said, look, you saw her walking around here with the Duke as the Duchess. For five years, you never said anything all this time. Mm-hmm. And so why are you tripping now? Right. Like, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But, you know, whatever. Nothing they could do could stop this trial from going forward. However, <laughs> comedy, there was another large, largest delay because now the Carpenters had to make tiered seating. And there's the real delay. That took <laughs> like four or five months. The Carpenters are like... You know, like workmen everywhere. Well, I guess we can do it in four or five months. This is the busy time of year, they actually said, to the parliament. (laughs) Which, of course, is giving the media even more time to build things up. They came up with a new name for her, Elizabeth, the Duchess Countess. So, you know, she can use both titles, right? The papers were so happy for this easy filling of pages. There were articles like, oh, no, and now that there's war in America, what do we do with criminals now? Articles like, this trial is only a convenient distraction from all of our losses in America. Articles like, husbands are already whack. Why on earth would a lady want two? One is punishment enough. (laughs) It sounds very modern, doesn't it? It does. I was reading about this and we were researching during the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. And I just kept putting Elizabeth's situation into that, you know, the way that it was just whipped up in the media. It was all over social media. So the social media of the Times, you know, the lady whistledown papers and all were filled with the same things about Elizabeth that we were reading about Amber and Johnny. There were so many parallels. All of this, I mean, both things, frankly, Mm. both trials Mm -hmm. seem so crazy to me. Like, who cares? The church court in Elizabeth's case said she was free to marry. The civil court said the money was hers. What more is there to canvas? She was the victim of publicity and some might say the patriarchy and envy. You know, people had been shirty about her having married the Duke in the first place. Remember that? It was okay when she was the mistress. And then when she got married, the tide turned a little bit. Well, each peer, each member of the House of Lords got seven tickets a day. Seven is a weird number, isn't it? So their inboxes got inundated with people inveigling for a ticket. Ooh, this is when you really want to know a guy. Uh We're in, you know, even the Duchess of Devonshire got hold of a ticket. It was the event of the year. Everyone wanted to be there. And if you couldn't get a ticket, what you could do, though, is go where the trial would happen if you tipped the guy at the door ahead of time. The week ahead, this guy made over two years of Elizabeth's old maid of honor salary. Mm -hmm. Just for peeks into the place being built, you know, where the trial was going to be held. There's a whole cottage industry around this trial, and most of it's done on the street with money passed secretly. That day, trial day, the streets were lined with lookers on. People with tickets had been there since dawn. Everyone's ladies' maids and valets had been up all night fixing everyone's outfits. People had practically come to blows over the best hairdressers in the city. 
I imagine, speaking of tipped employees, they probably made a lot of money that day. That's what I'm saying. There's this whole other industry surrounding this. And not only the hairdressers and the ladies' maids, but there's also cooks. Because these people are looking at this as a party situation. And there's breakfast the day of the trial. There's like social event breakfast before they went to Westminster Hall. I'm telling you one thing, whatever, eating is one thing. I would not drink a thing if I was them. No. (laughs) Because I've seen pictures of the way this was, and I'm like, I don't know how any of you are going to the bathroom. But given their casualness, maybe everyone just peed right at their seats. Yeah. Here we go. (laughs) I don't really know. Um, That is actually, it's funny. I was reading one biography, and it said, um, what did it say? Facilities for elimination are not recorded or something. (laughs) How polite. Oh, dear. Well, there's 4,000 people in this room chatting, glittering with jewels, just burning with excitement. There was one little incident of genuine excitement that made the papers. Two women fell through the flooring of the scaffolding and plopped onto another, messing up their hair. And then there's another two women who got their hairdos entangled and had to be separated. The hair, it's like, oh, wait, you didn't say the one that I was going to say. Oh, what was that? Well, all these balconies had been kind of jury rigged, you know, and one of the ladies hearing a noise thinking she was hearing the peers coming in, you know, the show was about to start, rushed to the railing and fell through a rotten board and ended up not being able to go all the way. She was kind of hanging like, um, was it Tom Hanks in the money pit where where your body from the waist up is still in the floor, but your legs are downstairs flailing and everyone can see, well, there's a thing about ladies' garments around this time. You didn't wear drawers. You didn't wear underpants. The better to pee on the fly, you know? (laughs) So she is from the waist down 100% naked, except for her stockings held up by a garter at her knee and her fancy bejeweled shoes. Kicking, screaming, and flailing, and much to the amusement of the audience below, if only they would have their cameras, but they didn't. Nobody did. Thank goodness. And they didn't have them when we were in college either. (laughs) Yay! Yes. (laughs) Not that there were any incidents uh, quite of that nature. Oh, heavens no. So that's excitement. And you know what the sad part was? That's pretty much the only excitement they had all day. So the Duchess, Countess, whoever she was, did come in. Everyone was so excited to see, but she looked fine. She was dressed very conservatively. In fact, later, Elizabeth was described as, quote, dignified without arrogance, collected without audacity, and humble without any of those sycophantic arts which characterize the vulgar person. So she was fine. Where was the drama? Why did I fight so hard to get these tickets? Why did I get up at three o'clock and have my hair done? Why did I wear my best jewels? That was boring. Everyone's like, hey, and the legal wrangling started and they're like, ah, like it doesn't have a story arc. Half the time, nobody could hear what was going on. Right. (laughs) They were like, oh, no. But can you imagine that moment when she appears at the back of the hall to walk to the front. She's got her attendant. She's got an apothecary. She's got a physician. She's got a chaplain. Some people likened her outfit to what Mary Queen of Scots wore to her execution. Mm. Yeah. 
So the hush that must have fallen over the crowd when she walked in, only to be so disappointed that she didn't do anything dramatic, like had been printed in the papers. Yeah. So day one was a giant disappointment. And there was a significant market for tickets for day two. Yeah. That people had had. They're like, mm. So day one was filled with arguments for the defense. Day two, however, got a little spicier because the prosecution started to lay out their arguments and they actually said mean things like dry lucre is the whole inducement, cold fraud, the only means to perpetuate this crime. This was a matter of perfect indifference to the prisoner, which husband she adhered to. So the profit to be drawn from this marriage or that marriage was tolerably equal. Like they're, they're painting her out as a cold gold digger. Mm -hmm. And so it got a little exciting and people started coming back. <laughs> The queen, however, only showed up on the first day, but she was pregnant with their 11th child, so I can see why she wouldn't want to come back. The problem immediately that Elizabeth faced, you know how she had felt a little uplifted when that civil case was dismissed? She felt like, okay, this is probably going to go the same way, but guess what? The very first thing they did, having been decided earlier in all those arguments behind the scenes, the judgment of the ecclesiastical court was rendered inadmissible as evidence. That's her whole argument, is that she wouldn't have married had she not been cleared to do so by that court. Mm -hmm. And they said that that couldn't be regarded. And that's a problem. It's a, that's a huge problem. And she's up against all these people that Evelyn Meadows has managed to present to the prosecuting attorneys. So in walks, here's the damning trio, I guess. Oh, do I have to? Hmm. Can I do I can I say that in that context and not have it be a bad word? Damning? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or do I have to bleep it? No, I don't think you I don't think even you have to bleep it. Okay. Well, <laughs> here's the damning trio as far as I'm concerned. Anne Craddock, witness to the wedding, the doctor who was present at the birth of her child. And the widow of the reverend who had actually performed the ceremony with the actual register with the words in it. Now, I thought we'd left that in safekeeping. Well, her cousin had accidentally revealed to a friend when he wanted to put another entry in it that that was in there. Oh, don't regard that. Just let's keep that between us. Okay, you can't keep a secret like that between no. people. And it leaked out. And the location of the register was leaked out. And here it was in court. I mean, come on. You know who wasn't there? The most damning witness of all. <laughs> Mr. Augustus Hervey was not about to put his face into this room and had literally fled across to France and was lurking about until the trial was over. He was not going to be called to the stand. No, he didn't want any part of this. He didn't want it to touch him. Nope. <laughs> he was not going to show up. This roller coaster of a trial was reaching the hill, wasn't it? We've got the first car just hanging over the summit. And it's about to balance out a little bit because Elizabeth is given an opportunity on the fifth day to present her side of the story. So she appears in court that day. She's got a stack of papers handwritten of things that she wanted to say, you know, address people who had spoken, accusing her of things, just presenting her case. So she's a very eloquent woman. Of course, she's going to be able to do it. 
she wasn't because her case was mostly emotional. It was about how she felt. She felt that she wasn't married. So she was felt that she was free to marry the Duke. Even though she had a lot of words and she spoke for about 45 minutes, she didn't say anything that was at all convincing. And there goes the roller coaster. Unfortunately, the verdict came back and it was nearly unanimous. One after another, the judges, the peers voted guilty, guilty, guilty. There were some abstainers, but not very many. And one friend said unintentionally guilty was his finding. Oh, that's bad news. Well, right before sentencing, Elizabeth requested what's called the benefit of peerage. And this is her point. If you say my marriage to the Duke was not lawful because I was married to Augustus Hervey, as his wife, I am now a countess. Because luckily for her, Augustus's brother had died and Augustus had inherited right before trial. So she is a peeress. Peeresses and peers really didn't receive a lot of punishment, even if found guilty. So guess what her punishment was? And I quote, your guilty conscience. After all this. <laughs> and she was required from now on to be known as the Countess of Bristol, which she 100% hated. And of course, the total ruination of any possible social life in England. Well, that's it. No, of course, it's not it. Well, the Meadowses wasted no time with another civil suit to overturn the will. Obviously, she was a duchess on false pretenses. So if the duchess has been left this money, who's the duchess? She doesn't exist. And they even successfully got an order for her not to leave the country. A legal order. But guess what? La, la, la. <laughs> Too late. She had had a friend zipping around town in her very distinctive custom coach, pretending to be her so that people thought that she was still in London. She had sent out invitations to dinners just as if she were in town. But the truth was that she hightailed it over to the Minerva and headed to France herself. Also, she had had for a number of weeks people packing up valuables from Thorsby Hall, and they were on their way too. She is no sleeper, this Elizabeth, mm -mm. and she knew what the possible outcome would be, and she still had loyal people willing to help her out in this way. Well, her European friends welcomed her warmly, at least at first, but she was not allowed a single second of relief because guess what came? A note from her legal husband. Now that I can prove we were married, I would like a divorce. Jack dictation now works in my favor. And something else, a trip to Calais was finally published. You know, scenting the market being high for such a book. Um, I am very sorry. It was very, very popular. And lots of people bought it eagerly. The author was already dead, but it didn't matter. The publishers made a lot of money. Someone called Elizabeth the poor hunted duchess. Well, she left everybody unread, including the summons from her husband, which she left unread on her dining room table. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that email. Yes. It must be in my spam folder. But unfortunately, news of her disgrace was sort of pouring across the courts of Europe. And she had decided that she needed to move farther afield. But to do that, the Minerva just wasn't the right vessel for her to 
go farther afield. She had a new yacht built. It had the finest of everything, exotic plants and art and bathrooms and heaters. She was big on the new tech, staterooms and ballrooms. And almost all of the contents of Thorsby Hall. (laughs) She staffed it with a French crew, a couple attendants, a coachman, a footman, a clergy. She christened the boat the Duchess of Kingston. (laughs) (laughs) She also got the brother of her friend, the electress, himself an elector of Bavaria, to make her a German countess because you know what she hated? She hated to be called the Countess of Bristol. And if people weren't going to accept that she was the Duchess of Kingston, she wanted an alternate title. So now she's the Countess of Varth. So all we have... To allow her to save face, if necessary, she already put a backup title into play. Because she was not feeling the fuzzies from the courts in Europe, she looked towards Russia. At that point, Catherine the Great had a fascination with all things British. And Elizabeth thought, that's a court where I will be welcomed. I will be, you know, the exotic creature of the week. So she headed herself to Russia, introduced herself at court and was accepted. It worked big time. It should be noted that Catherine the Great did receive her as the Duchess of Kingston. No skin off her nose. We've covered Catherine the Great before. She did not have to care. Whatever. Like, you know. Mm -hmm. So again, Elizabeth started her old scenario, giving dinners for royalty. The Russian court had a fashion for precious stones the size of Robin's eggs. We've talked about that before. So as extravagant as Elizabeth wanted to be, girl, you you don't know. (laughs) Catherine the Great did not fall as a best friend in love with her the way the electress had. But she thought this visit made a welcome distraction. And she admired Elizabeth's spirit, for sure. Elizabeth was expected back at Calais, just across the English Channel, to talk to her lawyers about her husband's Jack Dictation suit. And she actually got an ultimatum. If you're not back here by such and such a date, we're just going to rule on it without you. Well, unfortunately, a hurricane broke her ship. She had to travel overland in the winter through floods, ice, wind, and at one point, quicksand. (laughs) <laughs> that she had to be pulled out of with 20 horses for real quicksand. But you know what? Nobody believes this. Nobody believes a hurricane came. Nobody believes there was quicksand, but evidently there really was, you know? <laughs> but it's late. It's too late. The ecclesiastical court, after reviewing Hervey's evidence, now ruled in his favor. So he can now file for divorce. So the church court, she's the Countess of Bristol now. The criminal court, we've heard, she's the Countess of Bristol. And he is going to sue her for divorce on grounds of adultery. And she's so worried that the civil case, the money, would all be given to her legal husband. Because that's what happens. Married women do not own property in their own right. It goes to her husband. And he kept sending her letters. Look, I promise you, I don't want your money. Send me any contract you want. I don't want the money. I don't need the money. I've inherited money. All I want is my freedom to marry so I can have an heir. Please hear what I'm saying to you. And she just has a hard time trusting people. And I don't blame her. And she put it off, avoided Took up residence again in Russia, got it pushed off, pushed off, unhealthy. I don't know if we brought out the quicksand excuse again. I don't know, but she put it off long enough that poor old Augustus Hervey, her husband, died early in England. He was only 55. So she's free again. 
Elizabeth, who is now 59, received some great news. The Meadows, that second suit that they had put forth after her criminal trial, had been decided in her favor. And the judge said something like, look, you, why are you being so opportunistic about this? This is ridiculous. Nothing's changed since last time. Get out of my face. Mm-hmm. Again, paraphrasing. <laughs> but he was just impatient with the whole thing and didn't really want to canvas it. And the property was hers. The end forever. Hilariously, right after this, she started to be very, very nice. Now that the judge has ruled in her favor, she had no problem sending messages to Charles, her heir, about the management of the estate. What do you think? You're going to be my heir, blah, blah, blah. And it was very calm. And she said she had no resentment. And she gave Evelyn a pension. I I know. (laughs) But anyway, so she's like, I bear you no ill will now that I am the real, real, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. She felt like she could be gracious. And how about this for gracious living? Elizabeth really liked it in Russia. So she was able to convince Catherine the Great for permission to build an estate. She bought a big property. She built a very lavish estate on it. She opened a vodka distillery. And she was also able to convince Catherine to allow her to name it Chudley. Okay, can I please tell you, and I swear to you this is true, the original name of the estate was Falkenhoff. <laughs> <laughs> so for someone who's just won a whole bunch of court cases, this sounds like Lord Farquaad <laughs> and Shrek, but I swear that's the real name of it. She bought Estate Falkenhoff <laughs> in Estonia, <laughs> in Russia, and turned it into the Chudley estate. But having an estate in Russia just wasn't enough for her. She thought she needed to go back to Paris and have a place there as well. So she went to Paris. She found a property. She started doing improvements on it to live up to the taste that she had and presumably the money that could afford that taste. As many property investors find to their detriment when they've got a hold of a property, there's more to do to it than you have the will to do. Most of us have to worry about the money. So far, she didn't. So she abandoned her house in Montmartre and bought a second one, like you do, like you do. And the Parisians were sort of intrigued about this lady and her new house became the place where everyone of talent or rank started to cruise by to see the spectacle and you know like Mm -hmm. let's go see the giraffe and an author and diary writer of some modern fame the baroness de oberkirk wrote the following about her. She is really a most extraordinary woman. Her great knowledge of society, her wit and brilliant imagination reflected as a mirror all that passed before it. It gives a brilliancy to her conversation I've seldom seen equaled. She is proud and self-willed, opposed to almost all received maxims, and yet variable and inconstant, both in her fancies and opinions. There were still traces of more than ordinary beauty. So Paris liked her. They did. And she did buy one last estate outside of Fontainebleau. She had a thought that she was going to turn it into a school for 200 poor children. And she petitioned the king to have it named. He granted her petition. And guess what? She named it Chudley. There's Chudleys all over the world. (laughs) It's like a chain, like cracker barrels. (laughs) 
So now she has estates all over the place. She is bouncing from Russia to Paris. She's even going back to England sometimes. For 10 years, she's building these properties, and it's really impossible for her to be there on site all the time and managing everything. And she's got a very expensive taste, and people were taking advantage of her. She was getting scammed left and right on these properties. And in her personal life a little bit, there was one Prince Radswill that thought he was in like Flynn and he was going to get the woman and the fortune at last. And he may have been more friendly than I'm letting you, you know, think of him. But she said of him, he may fire as much as he pleases, but he will not hit his mark. She had his number. Yeah. <laughs> there was another guy who pretended to be a prince and his actual name was Vorta. And she actually kind of did fall in love with him a little bit. But, you know, she can't marry again. Right. Because that's in the will mm -hmm. of the Duke. She can't marry again. He was dismayed by that. Um, ultimately, she dismissed him and his scheme had not worked. But, and as I have just been talking to my husband about, her feeling health prevented her own full enjoyment of the empire she had created. And I keep telling him, we need to do things now while we're still very spicy, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, while we can still hike in Machu Picchu or whatever, um, we need to start rolling. So that's a goal for the next couple of years. You're going to hike in Machu Picchu? Oh, I don't know about that in particular. Maybe I'll just hike up the up the stairs of Montmartre. It sounds <laughs> okay. like more of my thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, your heels might get stuck somewhere. <laughs> You don't wear heels in Paris to get caught in the cobblestone. I was I had you in Machu Picchu. <laughs> I don't know that Machu Picchu is my thing. I mean, if I can get some drone footage from there, I think I'm okay. But yeah, I would like to just, you know, travel more. Go here and there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to go to some Greek islands uh -huh, and there's a lot of stairs there, yep. so Yep. Yeah, I don't I don't know what happened. I think after the pandemic, you know, being at home so much, having that same realization that, you know, the years are not going to be kind to me very soon. I want to travel. You know, I planned a lot of travel, you know, mostly while I was stuck at home, <laughs> just creating Airbnb boards. But yeah, I, I got travel in my mind too. Well, I do want to object to the term after the pandemic, because honestly, oh. as some of you know, I am still sick. Mm-hmm from the COVID that I picked up on our trip to London, I still have lingering effects. And I definitely do not think we are in a post-pandemic situation. No, I no, I agree with you. Yeah. So we're at, we're at like pandemic part seven Oy. or something. I don't like these sequels. They just keep getting <laughs> weak. <laughs> so while she's doing all this traveling, she's starting to write up her own will, but she had several versions of it going. Evelyn was nearby. He was in France when she was there, just kind of keeping an eye on things. You know, she had opened up communication with him. So he took advantage of that to just be nearby. He could see that her health was failing and all the stress from all the travel and everything that she lived in her life. On August 26, 1788, at the age of 67, in a rented apartment in Paris, because her other home hadn't been finished yet, Elizabeth Chudley, Countess of Bristol, had a glass of wine and a piece of toast with her two attendants, and then she died. And here is some bad mess. So quickly, Evelyn cruised in and took the silver out of the building. Mm -hmm. 
quickly, a lot of servants laid their hands on stuff and took it out of the building. And throughout the months, M-O-N-T-H-S, that followed her death, people did not want to remove her body from the apartment. So the doctors did take her out of the apartment, but she didn't have a final resting place. And there she was, just unclaimed baggage, until November when someone quickly put her in to the crypt at the Protestant cemetery, just in a vault, just until people could decide what to do with her. The interest in her was really the interest in her will and what on earth is going to happen to all the stuff. Everyone is fighting. Is it because according to French law, if you inherit, you also inherit the debt. Well, where is everything? How much is the debt? Evelyn actually got arrested for taking that stuff. He was charged for theft. Her steward in Russia was living on her property as if he owned it and could not be dislodged except by the power of the authorities. He had to be taken out by force. He was squatting. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> The guy that did the estate sale there in France kept all the money and got arrested and sent to prison, although she had carefully listed who was to get what, including hilariously, a set of jewels destined for Madame de la Touche. Do you remember her? <laughs> her husband's old original OG mistress. Everyone thought this was too complicated and decided to liquidate everything by selling it and then distribute it to the heirs. And I know that's what's going to happen to my things. I feel sad. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, having just cleared out my parents' house, I'm getting starting to get rid of things and give it away now because I don't want my kids to go through what we had to go through. And my parents had downsized within the last 10 years. So their stuff was very orderly, but just where does it go? You know, where do these things with sentimental and financial value, where do they go? Well, I don't know. And that's the hard part. Like, no one will know the stories. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess that's the whole function of death. Like, that's the end of that story. Now yeah. it goes to the thrift store to get on Weird and Interesting Finds Facebook page or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's how that stuff ends yeah. up there. I know. I'm a realist. But here's another sad fact. Here's another sad fact. She had, in addition to the careful distribution of her beloved objects, I mean, this girl had a lot of objects. So some of these things were just like... Nothing, but some of them meant a lot to her. She also had detailed plans about where she wanted to be buried if she died here. Let's let Catherine the Great decide where I go. If I die here, I would like to go here. If she died close to the estate where she and the Duke had lived so happily, she would like to be put in the same vault as him with her coffin chained to his. That was her ideal. And Charles, who was the heir, said, absolutely, that's fine. I don't mind. Sounds good. Send her on over. But guess what happened? The French Revolution. And there, somewhere, she remains. Location unknown. She never got to come back home. She never got to lay in state. She never got a headstone. Mm -mm. Nope. So her whole memoir is, um, you know, this. Books written about her. The second that she died, the biography started. Various degrees of spite, various degrees of hate, um, various degrees of truth. Mm -hmm. It's hard to kind of ferret out the, the hype and hyperbole from the real story. But so um, it's very important that we keep her story out there because like, as I said, she doesn't have another memorial. 
And now it's time for media. And as always, let us start with books. The book I found the most helpful, although it is not the most recent, is Elizabeth, The Scandalous Life of the Duchess of Kingston by Claire Gervot. Thorough enough without being too backroadsy. I own this book and I should share you a picture. I have a lot of pages folded down. Oh, uh oh. <laughs> but it's mine. It's my personal book that I yeah, but even personally like, own. The library people are not cool on that, even when it's your own book for some reason. I don't get that. That's funny. The other book is more current. It's The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalized 18th Century London by Catherine Ostler. This one was just published in 2021. The author does seem to lean towards Elizabeth having a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So throughout the story, when there's a symptom that could be borderline personality disorder, she points that out. I mean, she doesn't say she had it, but she's just kind of giving you evidence that she did. And if you get the audiobook, the author herself is reading it and she's British and it's lovely. She does an amazing job. So two thumbs up on that. <laughs> and then if you are into going a little bit in the Wayback Machine, there is a series of books called The Amazing Duchess Being the Romantic History of Elizabeth Chudley, Maid of Honor, The Honorable Mrs. Hervey, Duchess of Kingston and Countess of Bristol, in two volumes by Charles E. Pierce from 1911. There was one um, between all those. It was from 1928. Elizabeth Chudley, Duchess of Kingston by Beatrice Curtis Brown. And I think after having read this and then read Duchess Countess, I think this is kind of where Catherine Osler started. So she took the information presented by Beatrix Brown and kind of researched it to find out if it was true or not. So I thought that was kind of fun to see things that Catherine Osler could support and things she couldn't. So if you're right. that level of nerdery, get them both. <laughs> if you want to go to an adjacent book, you can read Grandma's Work, The Poems and Prose of Mary Lady Chudley, edited by Margaret Edsel. And you can actually read the entire text. Um, it is online. Her most famous book, I'm going to click my link so that I can read you the whole link because it is really long. Okay, here we go. Ready? The Female Advocate or a Plea for the Just Liberty of the Tender Sex and Particularly of Married Women Being Reflections on a Late, Rude, and Disingenuous Discourse Delivered by Mr. John Sprint in a Sermon at a Wedding, May 11th at Sherburne in Dorsetshire, 1699, by a Lady of Quality. <laughs> and it is dedicated to the Honorable the Lady W. Lee. So it's Wortley Wanague. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that right now. I don't have any more books. I wish there was a movie. This is a story that's made for a movie, I think. We say that a lot, but it's... Yeah, it is. I honestly think people going through our back catalog, if you're a film student or a producer, you could really just have a whole career worth of things. Right. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to be kind of clever with the the script, I think, and you'd probably have to have a location budget, which is kind of a bummer. But maybe you're creative and have some CGI experience. Uh-huh. Works for Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> Would you pick any thread of her story to tell as a movie? Well, I think that the the whole thing about there being like the menace from all of society 
Mm-hmm. And she actually really did love him would be enough of a conflict. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So that's what I would do. Now, as to, you know, so no movies, no TV shows. I do have a couple of links. Um, there is a link on Jane Austen's world about the Winchester races. And if you would like to know about the history of home Pierpont Hall, which actually has very little to do with Elizabeth, but in fact, they view her as family adjacent so important that they have a whole biography on their site. So many of her houses actually have turned into hotels mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's what you're going to find if you look up almost any of the houses she ever lived in. They are hotels. Nice. Speaking of places she lived, the Royal Hospital at Chelsea it had been closed. It recently reopened for tours. So that's awesome. And of course, there is the Chelsea Flower Show with their 500 exhibitors from around the world. I fell down a massive Chelsea Flower Show rabbit hole. I have an entire page of notes because I knew you'd be fascinated by it, Um, but I'm not going to read them. But it's been going since 1862. And the one little bit of nugget that I thought was awesome Gnomes, garden gnomes have been Mm -hmm. banned except for 2013 when celebrities painted them as a fundraiser. At the Chelsea Flower Show? Or the Chelsea Flower Show, yeah. Okay, so I have a little tidbit. Okay, so we were staying in the Wellington Hotel in London on Vincent Square and the headquarters of the British Horticultural Society is literally on the same square. We passed it every day. And I didn't realize it. (laughs) That's how much of a nerd I wasn't. And then I will provide you a link where you can, if you wish, read the entire text of The English Baronetage by Arthur Collins. Do be warned. 500 pages will not get you through the letter C. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. And then in addition, why don't you go in the Wayback Machine of the History Chicks podcast and listen to the Lady Mary Wortley Montague episodes and also the Catherine the Great episodes while you are at it. And you know what? We're all time sensitive. Why don't we go back to the Marie Antoinette episode? That's the way back. That's episode (laughs) one. We revisited it with better sound quality go a little bit further (laughs) into the back catalog. But those women were all alive at the same time that our story is taking place. And two of them did intersect with our subjects. So that actually might be very interesting. And that's all I have. Yeah, I don't have anything else either. And in closing, rather than provide a quote, we um, have provided many quotes throughout this episode as to what people of her time thought about her. I just want to let you know with what armor she was provided because the motto of the Chudley family, out vincam, out peribo, in Latin, in English means I will either win or perish. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or tell a few friends about us. We are headed to New England in October. We're going to see some old friends' houses. Louisa May Alcott, Abigail Adams, Lizzie Borden, Consuelo Vanderbilt, and we'll also be walking in the footsteps of the suffragists. There are still a couple of tickets left, and if you would be interested in checking out the itinerary, you can go to likeminestravel.com. Links and photos of the things we talked about today can be found at our show notes at thehistorychicks.com. The song in the middle is And the Stars Turned Into Jewels by Real Drum. 
And the song at the end is Everybody on Your Block by Lily Wolf. Special thanks to Chris Graham for his help with the 30-second summary today. XOXO. Bankrupt and ashamed. You stumble through the days. Feeling weakly sentimental. Kind of bored. Rearrange the planes and pieces in your head